And good afternoon, Chuck Morse, Left Right Radio with Chuck Morse, Monday through Friday, 12 noon, live at Facebook and on all the servers. Um, I want to just uh, I want to welcome Tara Ross to the program. Tara is an author of many books, including The Indispensable Electoral College, How the Founders' Plan Saves Our Country from Mob Rule. We elect a president, the story of our electoral college and enlightened democracy. The case for the Electoral College. Tara, thanks for joining me this afternoon. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Tara, the issue of the Electoral College is a, is a pretty hot one. I had a guest on the other day, a man of the left, who told me that the Electoral College is undemocratic. Um, <laughs> could you make the brief case and give it a little bit of a historic context with regards to why the Electoral College is important and what it is? Well, I think the Electoral College is really misunderstood. People have this idea in their heads that we just created the Electoral College because we didn't have the Internet and we didn't have airplanes and we didn't have kind of the modern conveniences of travel and communication. Nothing could be further from the truth. The Electoral College was created because our founders understood that they understood human nature. They understood that power corrupts. They understood that if you give a bare majority the ability to tyrannize the other 49%, they'll do it <laughs> because this is how we are. Um, they, they, by the way, thought that of themselves. You have to remember um, there's a historian named Carol Birkin that makes a very interesting point. She says, we were sitting in, or the founders were sitting in this room. They were the most likely men to be senator and United States president. And they sat there and debated how to put checks upon themselves because they didn't even trust themselves. They understood, you know, we joke around about our congressmen going up and drinking the Kool-Aid for too long and how they're never quite as good after 20 or 30 years as they were in the first couple of years. The founders understood all of this. And so they created many checks and balances in our constitution, separation of powers, um, you know, division of power between state and federal governments, presidential vetoes, supermajority requirements to amend the Constitution. The Electoral College is one of these safeguards intended to protect us. I think you make the case quite well in that the Electoral College is part of the systems of system of checks and balances. It um, essentially allows for the direct election of a president, but it uh, suffuses the power to do so amongst all the states. It doesn't just reside with the most populous state. I mean, it, it, in other words, you have a system where Alaska, small states like Vermont, um, you know, Arkansas, they have an equal say in who the president is with New York and California because of the delegate system and the electoral system. Uh, if we don't have that kind of a... Um, a relatively equal, although it's imperfect, but a relatively equal means by which we elect the one national office that we have, that mm -hmm. is the president and vice president, then, then the president can just run from New York. I mean, they could just run from Los Angeles. They don't need to right. go out to Kentucky and uh, North Dakota and Colorado and, and, and Arkansas. And so the significance of it is that it, it, it allows for the various regions of the country, all of which have their own unique situations, their own unique cultures, to have a say in who the president is going to be. Exactly. And I think the 2016 election, you know, look, it was 
chaotic at times and a lot of stuff went sure. on. However, there was one principle that was demonstrated quite clearly. Hillary Clinton got 20% of her vote from only New York and California. And she wasn't even trying for that outcome, right? She was trying to win the majority of electors. Um, imagine if she was actually rewarded for going to those high density population areas and racking up as many votes as she possibly could. She did that by accident. Um, certainly without the Electoral College in place, there would be even more incentives just to go and do that. And other parts of the country would be ignored. And, you know, a Republican would go to high population centers in Texas or, or something like that. Um, but every, every candidate would, would, would or nobody would have any just reason to go out and build coalitions to figure out what makes the Midwest tick, what makes the South tick. Why do you know what do people on the coast care about? Right now, there are at least incentives in the in the situation, and you're punished when you don't do that. That's right, and it is a part of the system of checks and balances in that it does diffuse. It, it it balances powers in the same way that the federal government is balanced through three branches, and then the federal government is balanced by the state governments. They then have various branches, and then they're balanced by the local governments, which have branches. I mean, it's a very intricate system, mm -hmm. and it's one that I think the, is the genius of the, of the Constitution of the Founding Fathers, who realized that corrupt power is corruption, that, um, as Lord Acton said, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts right. absolutely. absolutely. So they were trying to avoid the phenomena of tyranny, and uh, thus they created all these various competing silos so that if any one branch of government obtained too much power, the other two would would basically check that, that growth and knock it down to size. And of course, the ultimate balance is contained in the Ninth and Tenth Amendments of the Constitution, which leave all powers not specifically delegated to the federal and state government with the people and with the states. Um, the Second Amendment is a form of balance of power. The, the right to keep and bear arms is a right for the individual to maintain not only a means of self-defense, but also a means uh, of, of dealing with emergencies if the government does come become so out of balance that it becomes tyrannical. In fact, the whole principle completely infuses our whole society. I mean, we all deal with checks and balances. We all deal with balances of power. In a way, it's a, it's a reflection of the best and I suppose worst aspects of human life. You know, we make decisions every day where we balance various factors, what we want to do, what we should do. You know, we, we balance our checkbooks. We balance, you know, we, we take a look at projections into the future. We try to balance what we do today with what we might be doing five, 10 years down the road or what we might have done five or 10 years in the past. And so in a sense, the genius of our whole system is that it most accurately reflects the best aspects of human nature. And that is to balance, we're, we're imperfect beings. Government is an imperfect force. In fact, it's an evil force. The founding fathers believed, and certainly that's in all of their writings. And thus it had to be constrained and limited and that this was the best way to do it. I think it was James Madison that said, if men were angels, no government would be necessary, right? I, I spent a lot of time um, when I was researching my last book, The Indispensable Electoral College, just looking at this balance between state and federal governments and, and you know, between a legislative, executive and press. And, and 
the more you study it, the more impressed you are with how, how delicate the balance is, as you were saying, but also how, how beautiful it is, honestly, in a way. And in the beginning years of our country, I think people really understood this a lot better. Um, and states were proactive in the presidential election process. And they, they, they didn't let themselves be dictated to by the, the national political parties or by the Commission on Presidential Debates or the mainstream media or the right. pollsters or any of the people that I think dictate to states now. Um, so I really, you know, I feel like the more we learn about our system, the more we take time to study it and understand it, the more we understand our own responsibilities in the system. And I mean, anybody that's upset with what's going on now from either direction, if you're upset about it, well, you had tools, your state had tools to make itself heard. And if your state did not choose to do that, well, then that's your responsibility within your state to do that. And, and the founders did understand that. Um, we don't, I think. And so we have become, I think, a much angrier country in some ways, much more divisive and at each other's throats. But I think if we go back and look at the ways in which the federal government or, or the ways in which we've allowed things to be centralized now, instead of remembering that every aspect of our government has responsibilities in the system, if we want to get rid of this division and anger and all the stuff that's going on, let's take back our responsibilities and let's and let's remember who we are. Uh, amazing. I couldn't agree more. I mean, the whole concept you're describing is the idea of subsidiarity, which is it's actually described best by right here in Massachusetts, our former Speaker of the House, Tip O'Neill, in his uh, political book, where he talked that he made the comment, all power is local. And that, you know, the more local it's, it's it, the more local the government, the more powerful, because that's where you live. That government right. directly affects your life. You know, when you elect someone to your local school board, you that person's your neighbor. That person has a son or a daughter in the school. They have a stake in the game. They're not, you know, they have more of a hands-on ability to determine uh, education policy than some unelected bureaucrat or some bureaucrat in Washington. And you know, it's a concept that was very well utilized by the by the Roman Catholic Church. It was utilized by the Anglo-Saxons in England when they had uh, after the Magna Carta. They had the sheriff. They had the ecclesiastical society. They had the king. Yeah, you know, they had different divisions of power which left a maximum amount of power in the hands of the local government. It's biblical. I mean, in the book of Judges, the uh, 10 Confederate tribes of Israel basically lived without a king and they had general coexistence and local government. And then when the people went to the prophet Samuel and said, give us a king, Samuel delivered an incredible speech that really should be read where he warns them says, if you want a king and you want to have a big government, they're going to enslave your, they're going to prostitute your daughters and send your sons out to war, and they're going to do this, they're going to do that. He goes on and on. It's a brilliant speech. And um, it's a concept that, again, it reflects the best aspects of human nature, that, that if you have local government making the big decisions on social policy, then left, right, or center, you're going to be a lot better off. I mean, you could have a state like, Utah is dry. They don't have alcohol because that's the will of the people of that state. They elect legislatures that vote to ban alcohol. But then you have a state like Nevada where they have legal prostitution, legal gambling, right? I mean, that's the will of the people of Nevada. So it's a much more 
in, you know, people on the left like to claim, complain about democracy. If you, if you adhere to and understand the concept of subsidiarity, it actually is much more democratic in the real sense because you have local control and that that control reflects your local values in a context of a state and a national constitution. I mean, I think that's right. And I, I think people, people just get this idea in their head, like we're going to come up with some idealistic where the majority of us agree and we're just going to do what the majority thinks and we'll have pure democracy all the time. What really happens is you end up with people spread out across into 17, 18 different positions <laughs> and nobody has a majority of anything at all ever. And so it, you can look at the Republican primaries a couple of years ago, by the way, if you want an example of that in action. It, it mm -hmm. was divided. It was fractured. It was angry. So you can't just say the person that gets the most. Well, that is somehow fair if everybody else didn't get to be heard in that process. Right. I mean, we, ha we have a process right now that acknowledges the majority of people will never, ever agree on anything ever. <laughs> and so let's try to create a system that makes as many voices, you know, as well heard as possible. And, and we will probably not end up with a situation that, look, I think in presidential elections, we hardly ever get everybody's first choice or a majority's first choice or even a large plurality's first choice. But I think we usually come up with a good second, you know, second place winner, a good compromise candidate that incorporates as many values as possible. And I think that when you when you live in a country as big and diverse as ours, that's about the best you can hope for. Pure democracy is not going to take you there. Pure democracy is going to take you to a place where 10 percent told the other 90 percent what to do because they got more than the next 9 percent. <laughs> so well, as, as you accurately say, Tara, it's mob rule. It's right in the right. title of your book. And right. even the Greek philosophers like uh, Plato and Aristotle were against it. But yet that was the ancient Greek system. And in the American system, in the formal sense, we actually protect the rights of the minority, not the majority. We protect the most vulnerable people, the people that aren't going to be the majority. And uh, the, the obviously the most vulnerable of all minorities is the person, the single individual. Their rights are protected against the mob. So, you know, people who talk about, quote, democracy, I mean, that was something that the founding generation hated mm -hmm. and that... Uh, you know, we have democratic principles, but they're put into a very restrained context and that the United States is not a democracy. The United States is a republic. It is for the republic for which we stand, not the democracy. So, you know, we, we should understand why that's significant, why that's actually a, a better and more fair system and that why that system has brought us the most successful and prosperous civilization ever in history. Right. I agree. I mean, the very simple analogy for what you just said that you've probably heard before is pure democracy is two wolves and a lamb voting on what's for dinner. <laughs> right. And the lamb doesn't feel good about itself just because it got a chance to vote. If we have a system that protects the lamb, the lamb is probably not going to win all the, you know, lots of votes, but it won't get eaten. So, and that was good. Now, Tara, since I became aware of your work, I've been getting your excellent daily email. Oh, thank gets, you. Yeah, it's, it's really, really good. So, I mean, it's uh, you get into various historical, you know, history situations and you put it into a really good context. You, you kind of write it in a way that it makes me understand. It's like a bell goes off. Aha, this is why this is relevant, right? Thank you. And and I urge my listeners to uh, to apply for this because... 
you know, to understand American history, to understand history anyway, is a way of understanding the world today. It's a way of understanding how things actually work. And you you go into some great and colorful stories. I mean, you, know, you talked about recently the impeachment of Andrew Johnson. You tie it into anniversaries, which I think is very interesting and very well done. Can you mention how people can get a hold of your, how they can apply for your uh, your daily email? Well, sure. It's on my website, taraross.com, T-A-R-A-R-O-S-S.com. And if you look, uh, if you're on desktop, if you look on the right-hand side, it's there's a sign-in kind of place. And if you're on mobile, it's on the very bottom of the page. Um, make sure you put admin at taraross.com in your whitelist for your spam filter if you're worried about that. But it'll send you the beginning of the story and it will send you links to the story either on Facebook or on my website, um, just whichever one you prefer to use. I think a lot of homeschoolers prefer the website because they don't want okay. their kids go on Facebook, but whatever works. So whatever I'm glad you works, like you get, you can get, You've got to get there. Um, you. Tara, you, um, you talk about the Constitution. You talk about uh, various challenges that we faced as a constitutional republic. And so I want to ask you a current events issue here. Okay. I'm hearing a lot of talk from liberal pundits and, and liberal talk show hosts about the constitutional crisis mm-hmm. that we're in. And what are they, why are we in a constitutional crisis? Because President Trump might fire Bob Mueller mm-hmm. and he might fire Jeff Sessions and the, the Justice Department. They say that this would be a quote, constitutional crisis. Why do they say, I mean, to my way of thinking, this shows the Constitution's working, but what, why do yeah. they say this? So if you don't mind, I'm going to just defer on that. And <laughs> I've been okay. trying to stay out of politics on my page. And, and to be completely honest, I have, I know the headlines as well as anybody, but I haven't done enough. And as a good lawyer, I know I need to do good in-depth study if I'm going to start. Good. Very honest answer. I just, uh, you know, I so, wanna, these are very serious charges. And I'm yeah, trying to- I understand. <laughs> trying to wrap my way around what is the exact crisis. I remember there was a constitutional crisis when Bill Clinton faced impeachment also. Right. When in fact, it actually showed the constitution was working. He had perjured himself before a federal judge. Anyways, well, probably one thing we can do is look back on history and see how many times there have, you mentioned the Andrew Johnson impeachment story that's on my page. Look over and over throughout our history. It's kind of the point of the whole thing, right? The three branches are, balancing each other out and that ends up they end up fighting sometimes or you know I mean some of what you mentioned is about the executive branch governing itself not necessarily a fight among branches but the point being just that there it is expected that humans will fight it is expected that humans some of them will be corrupted by the power they've been given some some will use the power more wisely there's all sorts of things going on here historically we've lived through a lot so um I, I'm just going to go back to you. I think the better people know our history and the better people know our constitution, the better they'll know the tools which they have to make their voice heard. Exactly. And that the whole, in a way, the whole system, the whole checks and balances is what keeps these things generally in check. And that mm-hmm. as imperfect as it is, we find some level of justice and uh, through jurisprudence. Anyways, Tara, I want to thank you for joining me this afternoon. Tara Ross is my guest. Tara, uh, I appreciate you joining me. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right. Take care. Thanks. All right. Thank you, Tara.